This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today I'm talking with Lieutenant General John Shanahan. John Shanahan, or Jack, is the director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center of the Office of the Department of Defense Chief Information Officer. General Shanahan is responsible for accelerating the delivery of artificial intelligence-enabled capabilities, scaling to department-wide impact of AI, and synchronizing AI activities to expand joint forces advantages. Lieutenant General Shanahan, first off, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show today. I know we're practicing social distancing. You're there at the Pentagon, and I'm here in my office. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I'm glad to be here. This is one of my final final acts in, in the penultimate day before I begin my terminal leave, and, and I, I wanted to say for those of you uh, who may be listening and don't know our history together, we have a little history together back to the early days of Project Maven, and we know a little bit about uh, crisis management and leadership in crises. So uh, I, I want to say thank you to you for being a, a strong partner, uh, despite working through some some real challenges in, in that uh, relationship, well beyond what 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 most people understand. So um, it's good to good to be back talking with you in a different capacity. Thank you. Well, sir, thank you so much. It was an honor being part of that team and for the very important mission that uh, Maven was accomplishing. So again, thank you. Speaking of crisis, though, Lieutenant General Shanahan, what a challenging time for all of us with the current threat of COVID-19. This is impacting everyone across the world. People are looking for clarity, for communication, to find courage from leadership to know what to do, that things are gonna be okay. What does leadership from your perspective look like in a crisis? We work together in, like you said, a crisis, and I've I've never seen anybody so calm through some (laughs) very tough times. Yeah, well, well, the the duck was paddling hard below the surface. Um, it was not easy to get through it. But uh, it's an important question because crises are are a fact of life, and more so now it seems than than in recent history. But when I think about what leadership looks like in a crisis, I, I always come back to a couple of core points. And the first one be communication. You cannot over communicate during a crisis. Uh, people in any organization or in society want to hear from somebody that's telling them what's going on. And, and uh, in addition to just over communicating, at the same time, people want honesty that, that, that tell them when things are going well and equally important if things are not going so well. But here's the plan for dealing with the things that aren't playing out in the way all of us would like, like to, to see. So the idea of being very honest with people, in crises in particular, people need to hear the truth and get a reassurance that somebody is handling the problem and they see a future where the problem could be resolved. And it may be two months, it may be six months, it may be two years down the road, but they need to understand what the plan is. Also, when it comes down to a crisis, people thirst for leadership. They want an action-oriented decision maker at the same time, they want somebody who's empathetic. And, and so I'm not saying those two things are opposed. There, there, there are some people that are very good at making decisions very quickly, being very decisive. But if you don't have some element of empathy and express your concern about what everybody else is, is um, going through, 
then you'll be seen as a little bit of an insincere or a cold leader. So it's hard to find all of those qualities wrapped up in the form of a single individual, but you have to come out straight in a crisis and say, this is, this is who I am. Here's what I assess as the problem. Here is what we are doing as a team to resolve the crisis. And here is what I expect to happen over the next time period. Now, here is what's going to happen to all of you, and then so on and so on. So it's the idea of, of being action-oriented, communicating, be empathetic, and have a steady hand. Have a steady hand that you're not going through this wild pendulum of, of, of emotions and mood swings. People want a steady hand at the tiller. Just give them the facts. Tell them things will be all right. Tell them how long it will be till they get all right. But I, I think you know, all of us in the United States – have a remarkable resiliency as a as a society. We've gone through a lot as a society since since the American Revolution. We we know what bad looks like, but we also are eternal optimists, and we're always waiting for bouncing back on the other end of the crisis. So this idea of of, of resiliency is so important to us. But to be resilient, you need, you have to know what the future could look like. That's where the honesty and the communication come in. So as commander of the Jake, you know firsthand how the advances of AI can be levered in a crisis. How can AI be used to aid with the COVID-19 crisis? This is something we have been dedicated to tackling from the moment we went into the current travel restrictions. Uh, I have some people in this organization that are incredibly forward-leaning, uh, what we would call action officers. When a few of them saw what was happening nationwide, they couldn't stand off in the distance and say, not our problem. That would have been acceptable because as an AI organization, what could we really do to solve this national medical problem? But that wasn't the answer they would accept. So we immediately formed, they formed, they self-formed a team took out a napkin and started sketching out what we might be able to do for predictive analytics. And they formed this team and then came and saw me and asked for a decision to move forward, which I essentially did on the spot because I knew how important this was to do this. And what I say is predictive analytics. Uh, there's a couple of things we might talk about elsewhere in this, in this session of this being a watershed moment for the Department of Defense, and it's sort of, we all knew we were in a digital environment. We all knew this is digital modernization requirement for the department, and we all knew that data was a big challenge, but what this br brings right to the open is how challenging the data problem is. So the team wanted to help with predictive analytics for United States Northern Command, Commander, the four-star, the National Guard, um, for the National Guard Bureau down to the state level, and even uh, trying to help out FEMA. Turns out, uh, for policy reasons, we, we could not do the FEMA piece. They're, they're different authorities required. So we focused on National Guard and United States Northern Command. Looking at over 70 different pieces of, or different sources of data coming in, and then understanding what it took to sort of do the, the classic AI pipeline is, is clean the data, curate the data, you know, label it somehow, put it on a platform. And then on the other end of that, have several different vendors, uh, up to a dozen at one point, all looking at ways to use that data to provide predictive analytics. What do I mean by predictive analytics? Mostly on either COVID-19 modeling or supply demand resource decisions that were required. Uh, the commanders know what today looks like. What they really want to know is what does seven days look like? What does 14 days, what does 30 days look like? 
we thought we could help with that problem. Turns out it's, it's extraordinarily challenging to do this, but we have over 70 uh, sources of data coming in. We now have over 40 models, nothing so sophisticated yet that I would say we've solved, we've solved this problem. Uh, they're minimal viable products. They're all in various stages of development. But, but the point is the team saw a crisis developing and refused to say, not our problem, came to me with a request and a recommended decision, authorized it on the, on the spot, and then a very small team uh, formed. And we've been working at this now for just about two and a half months. And I couldn't be, I couldn't be prouder of the organization. Uh, but we've also learned so much about, about this project that will help us in everything else we do in the Jake from here on out. So we've learned more in two months, as the lead officer on this said, than he would have learned in a year otherwise. So it, it, it's, it's, uh, it has a variety of benefits by, by going into this project the way we did, but more about just uh, people that step up in the middle of a crisis. A lot of people don't know what that looks like and say it's someone else's problem. It was our problem. We wanted to help, and we're in the middle of it even as we speak. Wow, that's amazing. You know, you are clearly an incredible leader that with a lasting impact. Um, Lieutenant General Shanahan, was there an event or a person that inspired you or had a tremendous impact you as a, as a leader that you're drawing from to find strengths during trying times like today? Well, the answer I'll give is not any single person. And maybe this sounds a little bit of a cliche, but I have learned from every leader I have ever worked for, good and bad. Everybody brings good traits as a leader. Everybody brings some traits that, well, I would say, show some flaws in, in their leadership style, myself included. So I would always observe leaders very carefully and say, that is good, that is good. That one I wouldn't do in, a, in my situation if, if the same um, situation presented itself to me. And so I've taken nuggets from all of them, beginning back to sort of my, my parents and, and kind of growing up. So there's a nature and a nurture piece of, of the answer to your question. Part of it is the environment I grew up in with a, uh, a mother and father who raised nine children uh, fairly successfully, despite our best attempts to, to throw them off path. And uh, so I learned a lot about um, just the core characteristics of, of, of leadership and, and qualities of of good leaders from them. But I also, as a, I'm a voracious reader, and throughout history, I'm always absorbing sort of what does great leadership look like? What does flawed leadership look like? And along the way of my, uh, my military career, I've worked with some of the best leaders I could ever have imagined, all of whom were not perfect. Every one of them had, had done things where I might have disagreed with, and it's no different for me. People uh, probably see the same thing in me. In terms of historical terms, more often than not, I look at Winston Churchill. Um, and, and I'm not an advocate necessarily of the great man or great woman theory, which is uh, only a single person changes the course of history. Uh, organizations are, are run by lots and lots of different people that do have a, a leader at the top, but it's not just the leader. It never is. However, I will say in historical terms, probably one of the, one of the few people in history you could point to and say, all right, that fits the criteria would be Winston Churchill or else um, it's very, very possible that England would have fallen in World War II. So uh, I, I look at Winston Churchill as resolute with a wit, with a action-oriented style. It did have empathy for people. And, and so there are lots of different leaders I could turn to, but the one I look at in, the, in sort of recent historical terms for me is Winston Churchill. 
I'm speaking with Lieutenant General John Shanahan, Director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center of the Department of Defense. After the break, we'll discuss how to handle the most important decisions and how to make them in good times and in crisis. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. And I'm speaking today with Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, Director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. General, what are the most important types of decisions you can make as a leader of an organization? Is there a type of decision or a way you make a decision that you think really sets the pace or culture of an organization? Well, yes, there's a lot I, I would think about when, when talking about sort of the, the important type of decisions or just in the approach to decision making, which does change in the course of a career as you move up into different levels of the military. So I started, my first command assignment was a fairly small organization, 150 people, and I was a lieutenant colonel in 05 in military parlance and worked my way up to my last command job in San Antonio was commander of 25th Air Force, which is a numbered Air Force, almost 30,000 people. Uh, there are different decision-making uh, processes in play for those two organizations. They're just not the same. And, and I had intermediate stages along the way. So a couple of things I think of is, first of all, what I, what I like to tell um, leaders at any level, hard to live by this, but it's still important to think about what, what this means. Make only decisions only you need to make. If you make decisions that are down too many layers below your level of authority, you're wasting your time. And if you're trying to make decisions that belong to a, to a superior authority, you're also perhaps wasting your time. Easy to say this, it is hard to do it. I think all of us get drawn in, especially in the age of instant electronic communications, trying to make too many decisions at a very tactical level. I am guilty of that, probably more than I would ever be comfortable with, but I just acknowledge the fact, but still try to go back and say, is this really a decision I should make or I should delegate to a subordinate who is equally capable of making decision because I have already given that subordinate enough guidance to move out and, and follow what, as we say, is, is commander's guidance or commander's intent. The other thing I would say is once you reach a certain level, Running a 30,000-person organization means, to me, gut reactions and instinct are no longer as valid as you thought they were when you were a younger person. And what I mean by that is it's one thing to make a gut decision or a decision on instinct in a very small organization that may or may not affect anybody in, in sort of a, a kind of a strategic way. 30,000 people, if you go with your gut and you're wrong, you may have changed lives. You may have you may have put people on a path from which recovery is not possible. So there is very little gut. Now you've built up years of experience, so you use that experience, but you also need to work your way through a very different decision-making process that is more deliberate, that is more collaborative, and that takes the, the contrarian opinions as much as you take the people that agree with you. And um, it's a tough read because I have a different style, but Ray Dalio's principles book, what he calls radical transparency, is a very, very hard leadership style where he's brutally honest with employees in the organization. It takes years to build that sort of culture that people trust each other to be able to do it that way. But it is working your way through a decision-making process that takes in all the different opinions, some of which be completely opposite to what you thought would be the right answer, and you bring that into sort of this coherent decision-making process. And then what I, what I like to say is to, to, to my subordinates, 
I go back to when I was on the joint staff and my boss as, as the J3, the director of operations for the entire Department of Defense uh, office or joint staff, uh, General Robert Neller, who retired as the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Almost, he was a very gruff guy, but he had a heart of gold. And he was very action-oriented. Every morning, he'd kind of look at us, and he, he used this phrase, which I've used many times since, no friction, no traction. I don't expect all of you to agree on everything that I ask you to do. What I want is to run the ideas through the crucible of friction and competition so we have a much better answer coming out on the other end. So to me, that, that's what this is all about. And then there's a philosophical approach, which is just how you tell people you care about them. And uh, my personal sort of way of saying this is people first, mission always. Um, people say, well, the mission's a priority. I didn't say it wasn't a priority. But when people hear people first, they actually think you do care about their well-being. You're going to get the mission done. The mission always needs to be done. And when it comes to something like life-threatening or combat, you, the mission is the priority. But sometimes philosophically, you need to say these things so people understand kind of where you're coming from. What accomplishments are you most proud of that you've been able to lead your team to accomplishment as, as director of the JAG? Well, we started in June of 2018 with nothing. We had four volunteers who were told to solve the entire Department of Defense AI fielding problem. Uh, and that was it. We had no money. Uh, barely had a place to work out of. I was still doing Project Maven and been asked to come in and, and lead this new organization for the department. And nobody was offering a lot of resources. So we had to take this, this uh, what I call the Big Bang Theory, from nothing to something. And it's been, those who have worked in the Department of Defense or in any large bureaucracy knows the challenges inherent in trying to grow an organization in such a bureaucracy. So as of today, we're 185 people strong. About 50% of those are contractors and the rest are, are government uh, civilians and military personnel. And in a year from now, we may be closer to 300 total. In some ways, that is stunning growth in an organization that stood up with only four people and now has over a billion dollar budget in the five-year defense plan and now has outgrown our facilities and are already moving into another, another, another facility. That's, that's a lot of turbulence. It's a lot of churn that requires a lot of leadership at every level. But it's, what I'm proud of is we've formed a nucleus of people that uh, have had our own share of challenges along the way, including this friction piece I just talked about, and have grown this organization where, where I am confident as I walk out the door, it will be a, an organization for which the momentum continues to build. I'm very confident of that because the core leadership team is an outstanding group of people, but it's taken us a while to get to this point. So I'm very proud of that fact and proud of the fact that between Project Maven and the Jake, I now have, have, have led the only two large AI fielding organizations in the Department of Defense. And, and more of that needs to happen. It should not be in the form of one three-star general, but much, many more leaders to follow to do it. You stated in past interviews that Culture, talent, and data are the biggest factors in adopting AI. What is the relationship between leadership and culture? Well, how does leadership affect culture from your point? Well, they're, they're, I, I, I would say they're inextricably tied together. And so culture is multi-generational, whereas leadership is temporal 
based on a leader coming in and a leader leaving, which happens in the military almost on a two-year cycle every time. And there's advantages and enormous disadvantages to that cycle. Right at the time where you're making big changes, you walk out the door and somebody else inherits the beginnings of your change, whereas likewise, um, you may not like what somebody else has done, but that's what you have. And so you try to fix it all, but then you walk out the door. So what I never have accepted, and I think it's absolute malarkey <laughs> to use a very old word, is for a leader to come in and say, I'm changing the culture of the organization. It's impossible to do that in one, one two-year cycle. Whether you read Harvard Business Review, or whatever it is, they'll tell you culture is, is multi-generational. To me, it's a five to eight to 10-year cycle to change the culture of an organization. Now, the benefit we had in standing up the Jake and with Project Maven is the culture began to grow from the very beginning. So we we're building that culture from the ground up. But the culture is not defined by the leader. The, the, the leader cannot come in the door and say, the culture of this organization is as follows. And write a memorandum and an order and say, go make this culture happen. The leader will do, will do what leaders do and sort of lead the organization. The culture depends on an entire organization shaping itself around the leader, but with the leader. And, and I handed out books in my first year of the Jake um, on, on this idea of culture. And it's called, the book is called Legacy. It's a very easy read. It's about the New Zealand rugby team, the All Blacks, and how this, one of the smaller countries in the world has a sports program in the All Blacks that has, depending on, on statistics, the winningest record in any sport in history. Why is that? The book is not a leadership book. It's not a management book. It's a book about culture. And when you read the book, you understand sort of what it takes to build and sustain a culture cannot happen overnight. Very important. So the leadership can help drive certain aspects of the culture. The leadership does not change the culture overnight. It takes generational change from leader to leader and leader to, to sustain it the way you would like it to be when you come in the door. I believe having the right culture can really make a difference when you're trying to achieve change within an organization. How do you approach leading an organization to adopt change? You have led men and women during military conflict. What is your strategy to keep the team focused on sometimes what might believed as being impossible? I mean, you know, getting the Department of Defense to adopt AI as quickly as you did and your incredible team have accomplished seems like a pretty big order. Well, the hard part is finding where you need to be very hands-on and directive and where you need to take all the different ideas and opinions from the organization to help you make a decision. There's a time and a place for both styles. But what I was talking about earlier about um, sort of how the decision-making process should go, uh, I could not be a stronger believer in diversity. Diversity in every respect of the word, diversity in background, diversity in race, creed, religion, color. Uh, 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 the more I'm, I'm around this planet, the more I realize how much value is in diversity, that everybody brings something different. And the moment you shut people out because uh, they're female and you're not used to dealing with females, you're destroying an organization. You may not even see it, but you're not making that the most effective organization. I'll never forget a simple thing that happened to me down in San Antonio. Uh, the, one of the female sort of mid-level managers one day came to me and said, General Shanahan, I just want to thank you. I said, thank me for what? I said, for listening to me. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, in the conference room, when you ask a question 
and I give you an answer, you actually look at me. And, and others have not done that. I was stunned, stunned by the simplicity of what she was saying, but by the fact that that made an impact on her, that I looked at her as I look at everybody else when I'm going around the table. And the fact that it would even go otherwise was shocking to me, but it made an impact on her. So we have to have a diversity, diverse approach to thought to help shape decision-making. So the other big things I would always put on the table when leading an organization to, to adopt major change, things like set the bar high. People should have extraordinarily high expectations. If you set the bar high, people would, will try to reach the bar. Um, also, you need to make it an elite feel to it, an elite organization. The Jake should be treated as special. And the next couple of years, I think that we'll have an opportunity to do that more and more, that, uh, we just don't take first comers. You, you want to come into the JEG, we're going to put you a very thorough review process to be able to make it into this organization. It's that elite. You should also build on a shared sense of pride, a common understanding of you're changing the Department of Defense. The JEG's vision statement is transform the DOD through AI. Boy, that's bold. But I tell you what, people want bold vision statements. It's going to be hard to get there. We understand it. But now we have a sense of what we're trying to achieve and a common, a shared sense of pride. And then sort of this idea of confidence of what we're all building towards. And the more people feel like they own the, the decision-making process, the better the organization is. And then the culture begins to, to develop around some of those core concepts. I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, Director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Coming up next, we'll talk about how marrying your passion with your skills can really drive your career. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, Director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. General Shanahan, in the last segment, we talked a little bit about change. Times of crisis have historically been an opportunity for change. I believe crisis can also present opportunities. What have been the biggest challenges that you may have faced with this crisis or other crises that you believe that the advances of AI can present challenges or maybe opportunities to meet these uh, crises? Any crisis tends to bring out um, sometimes the best in people and organizations, uh, but unfortunately sometimes it brings out the worst. And what you're always trying to do is is find the best. And why I am so proud of, of the Jake is we have uh, come together in this time. Uh, and I would say two and a half months ago, I wasn't sure how we would react in a situation like this. I just, we hadn't been through it. We weren't even set up for teleworking. We were that new of an organization. And like any DOD organization, once the coronavirus hit and we went into teleworking, we took a dip. It was a lull. We weren't, we weren't ready for it, but it didn't last very long. And, and what I saw forming very quickly in about a week, in two weeks, in three weeks, was a coalesce, coalescing around the crisis. And where physically we might have been challenged just to walk from one part of our crystal city spaces to another, instead everybody shows up together in our collaboration meetings and understands what their role is in a particular part of one of the missions we're doing in any given day in the Jake. And I saw us begin to form and get tighter. We had just gone through a major realignment in, in the Jake in the past uh, four months. Started back in January, but we really started to implement the changes just within the last few months, right as coronavirus hit. 
it was it was significant enough that it was causing tension in the organization as any big realignment does but what we did is as a result of sort of coming together in coronavirus worked our way through it so now i look at the leadership team it's all working together not to say we don't have disagreements every organization is going to going to disagree about certain certain decisions but i'm i'm show it coming together it's a little bit to me it's a watershed moment and it's and it's one we've taken advantage of as as i as i like to say having commanded um, flying wings in other organizations. You can almost never control the action. You should always be able to control the reaction. So it, it, it matters so much as how an organization adapts. The crises are going to come and go. They happen. It's just part of life. It's how you adapt and how you react that shows the strength of the organization. It shows the strength of the leadership and how people either either step up or in some cases, in other places, I've seen people fall to the wayside because they just didn't know how to handle the crisis. That's why people thirst for leadership in a crisis. They, they want to contribute. They just want somebody at the top pointing in the right direction. In the last segment, we talked about some of the biggest factors going into um, adoption of AI and, and riding off of, of something you said earlier about people first. Um, we, we talked about culture and leadership, but the next element you cited is talent or skilled people. The biggest battlefield for Silicon Valley is the recruitment and retention of talent. High re retention and effective recruitment of sought after high, at, you know, high um, achieving technical talent are, is a big relationship with how they feel about their leadership. What are your thoughts on the relationship of leadership with recruiting and retaining top talent like you have there at the jig yeah, this is this has not been easy for us if, if it's a challenge for silicon valley who can throw five hundred thousand dollar a year salaries at people coming out of uh, ai and uh, programs uh, computer science degrees imagine what we're trying to do in the department of defense at the typical uh, government civilian salary of let's say somewhere between 120 170 thousand dollars you can't come in to to be rich uh, what we can offer is a very hard problem set, a very different kind of problem set. Not everybody comes in because it's just a, a sense of patriotism, but a lot of people do want to come in and work on hard problems that are actually concerned about the national security. They do want to do public sector work. And so you're trying to find where those pockets of people are. We didn't do it very well in the beginning because I didn't have a recruiting capacity to go out and find all of these people. So what we did is have detailees, and detailees are just a temporary assignment of people in all the different military services coming in, and six months at a time. And then the six months ran out, and now we found different people for a year. I can tell you how hard it was to build an organization on people that were only going to be there for six months that may have not even had much, if any, background on AI at the six-month point, just beginning to understand the basic concepts, and then replaced by people who were there for a year. They got a little bit smart in six months and quite a bit smarter in a year, but nowhere near sort of that high-end uh, AI talent that, you're, that they're recruiting out in Silicon Valley. So we, then we've had to come up with an upskill plan and then really get more aggressive on recruiting. So we're on the verge of hiring. You know, we have an internal HR uh, a team, human resources, but in a different part of the Jake, we're bringing somebody in at a senior level to work on the human capital part, which is all the AI uh, talent management challenges the department faces. 
This is so important to get this right. We're bringing somebody at just that separate role and going out to industry to try to find the kind of person that done this successfully in, in, in all the, the companies that everybody who's listening to this broadcast would be familiar with. But it's a hard problem to solve. And there is this aspect that's so important is A players attract A talent. So our chief technology officer, uh, Nand Mulchandani, 26 years in Silicon Valley, uh, co-founder, vice president, CEO, of various software companies, bought companies, sold companies, uh, has a wealth of experience. How he came to work for the Jake is a broadcast unto itself. I would say a large measure of serendipity between me and him and how we connected. Uh, but ultimately, he wanted to come do some public sector work. He transformed the organization from the day he walked in the door because he has a different view and a different background. And now he's bringing in some people that he knows. Those people will know other people. And you start building this cadre of expertise that has been impossible to find in DOD because we haven't built it yet. But at the same time, I am the, I am the, the firmest believer in upskilling talent and being very proud that we can get this. Yes, it will take us a little while. And I know we don't have everybody with a PhD from Carnegie Mellon, but boy, we're going to try. We're going to, we're going to do everything we can to upskill this force so we have that force of the future. So there's this combination of internal upskilling, but also bringing in that talent from the outside where we have lots of different ideas in play from industry exchanges, increasing salary opportunities, um, and a lot more. But it's going to take us a while to get there. But uh, I am confident on this one that the more talent we bring in, the more talent we will attract. AI has so much promise for uh, addressing some of the national security um, you know, requirements and, and challenges. At least I believe that. But there are other organizations um, where employees have walked, not because of their concerned about how uh, the technology is or, or is not being used. I, I believe people don't walk for money, but they yeah. walk because of leadership and trust. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on how this uh, uh, can be addressed either within the Department of Defense or really the bigger question is um, in some of the high tech uh, companies that support the Department of Defense? I, well, I'm, 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 I'm so strongly agree with your point that when people walk, it's almost never about the money. It's about how they're being treated. Um, it's how it's what their role in the organization is. And, and, and it sort of always comes back to, do I feel like I'm value added to this company or organization? If they do not feel that day in and day out, it, it, it can get to the point of depression and saying, why am I even here? Nobody's listening to me. And that's such a bad, that's a corrosive impact on any organization. So what comes down to is a leadership um, making it clear to everyone what their role is. And, and we struggled with this in the first year of the day. I'll be very honest on this. It took us to a, to a strategic offsite in January of this year to realize that the most basic questions about do you understand where you fit in the organization and dead silence from people like, no, I don't. It was a wake-up call, which is why we, we, we realigned the organization. We just had people didn't know where they fit in the organization. It's horrible to go home at night not knowing what you're contributing to an organization. So we worked hard on that. And, and it does come down to leadership. And it does come down to trust. And it does come down to everybody has a voice into a decision-making process. Now, it's fine. There, there are times and places where people aren't good fits in an organization. As, as I have found in my career as a commander, leader of an or many organizations, uh, there's one decision about moving people because they were not the right fit for the job in which they were installed. 
there's an entirely different question of firing somebody because they've done something illegal, immoral, unethical. Look at those two things separately. It, I think we'll find over and over again in sort of this emerging tech world that people are better suited for jobs in which they were hired and give us the flexibility to move them around in the organization. That doesn't get talked about enough. People sort of just uh, get this habit of saying, well, you know, you're, you're not the right fit. We're going to move you from the organization. Um, I think in this emerging tech, we've got to have one. We've got to have a little bit of empathy. But I think leaders also have to have, to have a healthy dose of humility to know that we haven't grown a lot of leaders in the Department of Defense that really understand this emerging tech side of the world. And they have to be a little bit humble about learning from others and, and listening to others to make it a better organization. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, Director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Next, we'll find out his advice for the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, Director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. You seem to, from my observation at least, you seem to really have married your passion with your capabilities. Do you think that has contributed to uh, the momentum, the success you've had in your career? Yeah, I, I, so I, I, the word passion uh, comes out more and more uh, in my more recent experiences. And it's this, it's this combination of curiosity, passion, and this thirst for lifelong, lifelong learning. To put those things together, and uh, people will generally look up to leaders like that. If you show passion for the mission, boy, it's hard for people to to ignore that. Uh, and you find it over and over again. The best organizations are led by leaders who are most passionate about what that organization is trying to do. And that, to me, is a very important word. And thank you for raising it. So you're retiring uh, from the military in a few weeks. Um, let me ask you two questions. First, the second one I'll put up front is what is your plans for next? And is there anything that you look back on your career you want to thank or, or acknowledge or, or, you know, you know, lesson learned that you'd want to share? Well, on the first question, I uh, am going to try something a little bit different. Surprises a lot of people when I say this, but I never took advantage of my GI Bill, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to go back to school, maybe a little bit different than Rodney Dagenfield, but that remains to be seen. And I'm going to enter a master's program down at North Carolina State University, a Master of International Studies, and focus, I hope, on the Indo-Asia Pacific, because I believe the future of the United States is, is dependent on our relationship with China. So I'll be very interested in, in that. So I'll do that. Um, I'll be matriculating in August in, into the program down at NC State. Uh, so that's what I'm doing next. In terms of looking back on it, I, I could never have predicted as a second lieutenant coming out of ROTC in the University of Michigan, um, getting uh, my entry into the uh, Air Force in the F-4 Mighty Phantom, and then to be 35 and almost 36 years later, having responsibility for standing up two different AI fielding programs. I could never have predicted that in a thousand years. As, I, as I'm fond of telling people, if you roll the dice a hundred times, 99 times it comes up with me retiring as a, as a lieutenant colonel, maybe a major or even a captain, never expecting to make general officer. There's a, sort of this combination of hard work, work for the right people at the right time, be passionate about what I was doing, 
and just sort of uh, uh, survived longer than those before me. There's this Darwinian aspect of just sort of adapting to to situation as you go on. And so I had to adapt. As I as I say, I had to reinvent my swing about eight times in the past 20 years with each different job. I had to learn something very new. But I've had a, a, a strange enough background of experiences that in some bizarre way put me in the right place at the right time to do Project Maven and the Jake, which I never, never would have expected, never could have predicted. And in some ways think, wow, I sh was it really, was I really the best choice for this? I, I'm not going to go back and try to change history. Fortunate to have the experiences that I've had, but I, I, I just want to thank uh, the, the people of Project Maven and the Jake itself. Uh, it's been a hard journey for, for the last 18 months or so for the organization with all the struggles of trying to grow very fast against a lot of pressure and a lot of visibility, a lot of spotlight, bright spotlight on the organization to try to quote unquote deliver AI for, uh, for DOD. So we, we've, we've had our shares of ups and downs and uh, as every, every leader should do, you sort of learn to balance the highs and the lows because what seems like uh, ecstasy 24 hours later becomes deep depression when something bad happens. Uh, so I've learned a lot along the way. Hope I've, I've been able to, to lead the Jake in the, in the right direction, but I also acknowledge it's time for somebody else to take it to the next level. And I'm confident that's going to happen with uh, Nan Molchandani as the acting director. And then at some point, a three-star is going to get confirmed in behind me, but probably a couple of months away before that happens. Sir, so do you have any final pearls of wisdom for the next generation that Jack Shanahan that is just graduating from college and looking at joining a company or the military service? Persistence, uh, willingness to adapt, uh, keep the passion, keep the flames going. If you want, if you have something in mind, don't lose sight of it. I always admired people that could map out their career when they were brand new lieutenants and said, I'm going to be a general at 35 years. Uh, that, hopeless for me to ever have done that. It works for some people. It didn't work for me. I sort of always took uh, one job at a time and, and in each job tried to do my best. So the idea of striving to be the best, not that you always are going to be the best, but striving to be the best, striving to learn each and every single day about getting better and learning more and wake up with a thirst for, for knowledge every day and a curiosity about what the world is changing around you and how you adapt to that world. So this idea of passion, persistence, curiosity, uh, adaptation to circumstances. Now, back in my world, some people just wanted to fly and fly for 15 years and get out and go to the airlines. And that was fine. That was their lifelong goal. And that, that worked for them. My goal was I, I, I joined to fly, but I enjoyed the service and I enjoyed the leadership opportunities. So I stayed in well beyond flying, flying time and learned that I had to adapt if I wanted to stay in because I believe this is that important for the country. Artificial intelligence is a critical element of the future economic and national security of the United States. My guest today, Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you for, you know, really opening up AI to the Department of Defense and sharing your personal journey and some very valuable advice. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Thank you.